I'm fascinated with storytelling. I'm intrigued by how a person decides to tell a story, what words they start with, what details they include, which invariably means they have to decide what to leave out. Perhaps you've listened to a storyteller and you've seen or heard them do this really well and you know when they do it not so well. Perhaps putting in extraneous details that you think, get on with it, I want to get to the story. So it's interesting to look at our scripture passages and the gospels in particular because they were written as stories to be heard. Mark is the gospel that we read from today, and at the conclusion of our service, we will, leave, we will read the Passion narrative as Mark wrote it. Mark was the first gospel written some 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, is when finally words were put on, on a, well, paper, so to speak. And so it's intriguing as to how Mark tells the story, and you'll hear in the telling of it, that he includes at the beginning a story of a woman who, while Jesus is sitting at table, comes and anoints him with oil. The Gospel writer wants us to understand that her actions indicate her understanding that Jesus is king. How it is that she anoints him on his head is something that would be done for kings. And so by her actions, she is showing the kingship of Jesus. Now, the gospel writer could have just said it so much in that way. Could have said, a woman came and she anointed Jesus' head, indicating his kingship. And that could be the end of that story. But at the start of the long narrative, there's a little story. You see, when this woman brings this jar of oil... The disciples who are sitting there with Jesus, listening and talking with one another, notice what she has brought, and they start to opine on her decision, offering commentary as to what she has done and what could have been done instead. Noticing the value of the jar, they say, why is this woman doing this? She could have sold this jar for a year's worth of wages. It's that valuable. And the money could have been given to the poor. Here is the story in the story. We look at it and we say, huh, a year's worth of wages. That means this is very important. How could I understand the importance of this story here at the start? Consider what a year's worth of wages is. The median household income of Ridgefield is $110,000. So let's say a year's worth of wages was the value of that gift. $110,000 is a lot of money. I was trying to think, have I ever given anyone a gift of that would be as valuable as $110,000? No, I haven't. Maybe that's a little excessive, so why don't we just say every household has two incomes and we'll just cut it in half and say it's a $55,000 gift. And still I'm hard-pressed to think of anything that I have. In fact, I can't even think of anything I have that if I sold it, it would get that much money that I could give a gift, whether it be a cash gift to the poor. 
$55,000, I can't even think of anything in my home, anything that I own that's that valuable. But perhaps that's still a little excessive, and we could then look at what a laborer earns in the year. Because indeed, that's how it's understood that it's a year's worth of wages. In one translation, it says 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And a denarii was what a laborer was paid for a day's work. So 300 would be that many days in a year, approximately. So let's look at a wage, the, what a laborer would earn if they were paid minimum wage. In Connecticut, it would be $21,000. That's what a minimum wage earner earns in Connecticut. That's before taxes, $21,000. Now, bringing it back to me, again, I'm hard-pressed to think of anything that I own that's worth $21,000. Our cars aren't worth that much. And that's about the most expensive thing that we have. We then begin to see the value of this gift and even the disciples' commentary on it in a different way. Which of us owns anything that's that valuable? And if we were to sell it, what would we do with the money? Would we give it to the poor? Jesus, in essence, calls their bluff. Their, their rumination on what would be better done with that jar of oil than what she's doing with it is only that, a rumination. They're debating among themselves almost for just the exercise of debating because this teaching of caring for the poor was not a new concept that Jesus introduced. The disciples of Hebrew descent would know this instruction. In the Torah, in Deuteronomy, we have direct instruction about what to do in regard to the poor. In the 15th chapter, it says, Poor persons will nev never disappear from the earth. That's why I'm giving you this command. You must open your hand generously to your fellow Israelites, to the needy among you, and to the poor who live with you in your land. So this concept of giving to the poor as a devotional exercise was a very old concept. Jesus, in essence, calls their bluff and says to them, you can give to the poor anytime you want. Thus begging the question, do you want to? The commandment of God is that we do care for the poor. And I dare say that I feel somewhat convicted in hearing this lesson, as you'll hear it at the end of our worship today. Because I know that if I did have an item in my home that was worth even $21,000, and I with earnestness sold it because I wanted to give it to the poor, then, then I would debate what to do with that money. I would think, who should I give it to? How should I give it? How will they use it? Do I think that it's worthwhile? And probably in the time of all of that thinking, I would think, you know what, I could pay off a big chunk of the credit card, which would actually then give me more money to give away. And slowly the money would dwindle away, dwindle away. So Jesus calls their bluff as they pick on her for her choice, her decision. Brene Brown is a clinical social worker who's done a lot of research on shame. 
and she has made um, a very clear distinction that shame and guilt are different things. Guilt is the sense that I have done something wrong or I have fallen short in some way. Shame is the sense that I am wrong. I am bad. I am worthless. They're two very distinct things. And shame is not true, but guilt can be an agent for making good choices and decisions. So perhaps when you hear this text, you feel a little guilty. I know that I do. I wonder how it is that I could ever be as generous as God has been to me. For that's the instruction in the Hebrew scriptures. And that's what Jesus' instruction is to all of his followers. Remember God's generosity to you. If you go and read on in the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy, God goes on to say, remember how you were slaves in Egypt and I brought you out of slavery into a land of promise and how I cared for you and I continue to provide for you. That's why I want you to be generous because I am generous, God says. I give more than anyone ever deserves, I give. And I want you to do the same. The woman then becomes a model for us. She has something in her home that's as valuable as a year's worth of wages. A year! It says, Jesus says that she is preparing his body for burial. You hear that when we hear it at the end of the worship service. So perhaps that's why she had it in her home. Perhaps it was saved for the time when she would need it to prepare someone's body for burial. It's that important of a thing. Perhaps she's aware that she doesn't know when the moment will come for her or someone else, and she wants to have what's necessary to do what is right in that moment. And she takes that jar off of her shelf, and she breaks it open and pours it over the head of Jesus. So let's consider the jar. It was most likely sealed so that it would be kept and would not, you know, go rancid in any way. So to break it open was to use the whole thing. It couldn't be meted out a little here and a little there. Once it was used, it was going to be used. She chose to pour it on the head of Jesus. I wonder what the size of the jar was. Was it a little four-ounce jar? If you think about how much olive oil perhaps would be, just as a visual, in a little four-ounce jar, and you poured that much on your head, it would really run. It would get in your hair, it would drip down on your eyes, your eyebrows would try to catch it. Or was it a bigger jar? If it was meant for the whole body, perhaps it was eight ounces or 16 ounces. That's a lot. She pours it over the head of Jesus. To put the oil on the head of one was to indicate their kingship. To pour it while they were alive would be to show a place of honor. And so by her very actions, she shows that Jesus is king, which is why Mark puts it at the start of his story. She shows through her practices that he is king. She demonstrates by giving him something that's so valuable that it would take a year to pay for it, that he's king of her life. 
And thus Jesus says, when the story is told of me, her story will be told as well. She has no name, but we remember her because of what she reveals to us, that Jesus is king. He's not some rabbi, as the disciples maybe were tempted to treat him. A wise one who speaks with authority. Indeed, we can be tempted to minimize Jesus to simply being a good teacher. But in this passage, she recognizes his kingship. She understands his relationship with her and hers with him and what that means for her life. And so we are invited as we hear the story and go through this story through this week to consider what's Jesus' role in my life? How do I recognize Jesus in my life? Is he a wise teacher, one among many? Or is he someone who I ask to rule? Not even knowing fully what that means but trusting that my desire to put him in that spot will bring about the best for me and those around me. She models this for us, and so her story is told as we remember Jesus. We're invited to consider the same thing. The invitation that God gives us to give it all, all of ourselves, to God. Jesus loves us into that, And as we go through this Holy Week and remember the ways in which he allowed himself to be guided by the actions around him, keeping singularly focused on revealing and demonstrating God's love, even when we could have understood a different sort of action, when we focus on that, we begin to see him differently and what it means in our lives. And the goodness of God, as we know in Jesus, is that he fosters us into this following. That God is gracious and merciful. And it's that God that loves us into a relationship. Not coercing, but going first and showing us the way. The promise of the kingdom that he is bringing about. Not in the way we expected, but in a definite way. That's the invitation of this Holy Week. And so I invite you to consider as we go throughout the remainder of this service and throughout the liturgies to consider God's invitation to you. Is he simply a wise teacher, one among many? Maybe a little bit more than others? Or is he someone that you want to be king in your life? Listen to God's invitation. Don't be afraid of the call that he has for you and for us all. That's the call into a new way, the way of the living God. Amen.